Hi there, I'm Dan, and welcome, or welcome back, maybe, to the Shaw Vineyard Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take just a moment to subscribe in iTunes or in your podcast app of choice. That way, you can get every message from our church straight away on whatever device best suits you. You know, it's our hope that the message that you're about to hear in this episode would encourage you to take your best next step in your faith journey. So let's get straight into it. Well, this is the lucky last of our uh, Becoming One series, but it's not the end by any means of our uh, ongoing attempts to become one. Uh, That's a process for life, I think. So speaking of life, uh, I'd like us to listen to the wonderful uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu, who can explain much better than I can this idea of Ubuntu that we've been thinking about over these past few weeks. So why don't you is an approach to life that is very difficult to describe in English words. It speaks to the very essence of being human, saying my humanity is caught up, is inextricably bound up in yours. We belong in a bundle of life. And so we say in our part of the world, a person is a person through other persons. It says not, I think, therefore I am. It says rather, I am human because I belong, I participate, I share. And harmony, friendliness, community are great goods. Social harmony is for us the summum bonum, the greatest good. That you and I are made for interdependence. You and I are made for complementarity. You have gifts that I don't have. I have gifts that you don't have. And you might almost see God rubbing God's hands in glee. Uh, Voila. That is exactly why I, I created you. That you should know your need for the other. There's a lot in there, isn't there? He said, we belong in a bundle of life. What a beautiful phrase that is. So what's in this bundle? So, you know, and I'm genuinely asking you, what what is part of the bundle of life that Desmond Tutu is talking about? Just shout some out to me. Grief. Grief. What was that? Family. Yes. Differences. Yes. And Caroline? No. Joy? Yeah. Children. Friendship? Yeah. Mess. Yeah. It's a bundle, right? work yeah and rest yep surprises Surprises. thank you kathy (laughs) sporting activities (laughs) rugby yes yeah what about um other forms of life do they belong 
in this bundle that we're interconnected with? What about the bees? Insect world? Animal life? And plant life? Marine life? Can we live without our connectedness to these forms of life? And maybe life even beyond our planet? From the stars, the light of the sun, the rhythms of the moon? Yeah, it's a pretty big bundle when we start thinking about it, isn't it? So how sad it would be to find out at the end of my life that I was part of a bundle, but thought the whole time that I was alone, not playing my part or not caring for the bits of the bundle that are uniquely mine to care about. That'd be too sad. So Nobu isn't here this morning and probably he'd be relieved, but uh, last week I think was the first time he was on welcoming or certainly he's become part of the welcoming team along with Naomi, his wife. When I first met Nobu, he and Naomi weren't married. They uh, didn't know each other yet, I don't think. Uh, one of the things that Nobu did on the, the weekends was that he would go out onto the islands of the Gulf and go tree planting. And I loved that as a Japanese man, he had fallen so much in love with our whenua and the birds and insects of here that he wanted to plant trees uh, for them and for us. I think that's... It's marvellous. Uh, he's acting in kindness and justice to those actually who have no voice. The birds and the, and the insects can't say, we need more trees, guys. Um, but there was Nobu responding to that need. And he's on our welcoming team now, so he's, he is caring for us now in a particular way as people arrive in every Sunday. And so he's participating in this bundle that he belongs to here. And then... He cares for Naomi and for Haruki, who are very much a special part of the bundle of life that he's responsible for and entrusted with. So the bundle of life is, is very local, but it's also global. It's personal, but it's also cosmic, and it's the gift of God to us to participate in it. And this is where our oneness happens. We're not alone. We are not one alone, even. We are one together. And like it or not, this seems to be the plan. So, I think, really, there's no point banging on about unity without making the point that unity has already happened and that we're included in it. That God is in perfect and self-giving union with the Trinity, as we see in this beautiful icon. And that through the cross and through the ascension of Christ back to the right hand of the Father, uh, that Jesus has included us in the divine relationship that he eternally enjoys. And he shares it with us. Our attempts at becoming one, if we're just doing them on our own, without our awareness of already being included in oneness, are pretty futile, I think. But instead, Jesus has done it for us and shows us how to live it. His prayer from John 17 says, this is just a little bit of it, the glory that you, God the Father, have given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me. 
It's already happened. Here's Baxter Kruger, wonderful theologian. He says, if Jesus is one being with God and one being with us, then his very identity as fully human uh, and fully divine speaks volumes about the relationship between God and us and about everything else in the universe. How seriously are we to take the absolute oneness between Jesus and his Father and his absolute oneness with us? Very seriously actually. And we can see it happen. So let's take a look. It happened at Pentecost, this radical oneness. Uh, this big festival in the Jewish calendar it took place 50 days after Passover. Those of us who are a bit familiar uh, with Jesus' story will know that by this time he has been crucified, buried, rose from the dead, and now uh, it's nine days since he ascended, or, or ten days maybe, since he ascended uh, to be present with the Father again. And so in this time, we still have Jerusalem packed to the rafters with pilgrims. So the normal population of Jerusalem at that time was about 100,000 people. And that was local Semitic Jews, Jewish people from Israel. However, Throughout the Roman world, there were lots of Hellenistic Jews. They were Jews who were more shaped by Greek society. They came from different countries and cultures that uh, are lost in the mists of time, really. We know very, you know, I know very little about them. Maybe you know a lot about them. I don't. But, you know, these Jews were foreign Jews. And to be perfectly honest, the, the Jerusalem and Israelite Jews didn't really treat them as equals. You know, yeah, yeah, give them the side eye. You're Jewish, but are you really? Not really one of us. Those foreign Jews who actually lived in Jerusalem actually lived in expatriate communities, just as many people who emigrate to a new country do today. There was solidarity and community together, not with the, these uh, Jews of Jerusalem. So there were 900,000 Jews from all around the Roman world who would come streaming into Jerusalem for these big festivals. Why? Because that's where the temple was. That's where the presence of God dwelt. If they wanted to be with God, they needed to be in Jerusalem. If they wanted to do the proper sacrifices, needed to be in Jerusalem. You, there were no um, franchises. No temple franchise. You had to go to Jerusalem to really get the proper thing. And there they all are. Pentecost happens. What happens? The local... Jews start speaking the languages of the foreign Jews. And they're able to communicate with them what has happened with Jesus, who he is in the light of their scriptures. And there's just this explosion of wonderful stuff going on. It's amazing. And it's not long after this that we begin to see this uh, playing out uh, in the Acts of the Apostles. Luke is telling us about it. So many of those people went back to their home countries, back to their houses and lives, but some of them were so fired up by what had happened, they didn't want to leave. I can understand that, but it's a bit like going to Festival One or something like that. You know, you planned to be there for the weekend. You weren't really expecting to stay on for who knows how long till this whole thing dies down, but we've really only got a tent and a small spot on the Mount of Olives and not enough food. So there's some pretty significant dynamics going on. 
So here we see Acts of the Apostles. Here's something that was going on as those two groups of Jews came together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as had any need, because pretty much they were living in tents otherwise. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Pretty exciting stuff. So there are these four key behaviors, four simple things that unified this group of two formerly quite separated Jews, which had leapt in number by 3,000 in one day. And rather than shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, what can we do about these crowds? And how are we going to look after them and feed them? Maybe they had Jesus' words still ringing in their ears saying, you feed them. So these newcomers had physical needs for food and shelter. Plans to return home after the festival uh, for some of them were abandoned because God was doing something right here. He'd talk to them in their own languages for crying out loud and from people who normally wouldn't talk to them at all. And if you were the person who had brought that message, wouldn't your heart open to them as you found yourself connecting in a way that you had never dreamed possible? So these people... The pilgrims had theological needs and discipleship needs. And our 12 disciples are no longer disciples. They've had to step into a new role of apostle. Jesus said to them, I send you. And they didn't even have to leave Jerusalem to start with. The Jewish world at this point had come right to them. And the temple was just the obvious place for religious discussions, for worshipping God, for praying. So that's where they went. That was their practice. At this stage, there was no such thing as a Christian. Everyone was Jewish, and they behaved like the most brilliant, bestest Jews you had ever seen. They kept the law of Moses. They were caring. God was doing wonders and signs through them. It was like this incredible moment in their lives. It was deeply attractive and compelling, while at the same time being also deeply challenging, especially to the thinking of those who are oriented around money and possessions. It was nothing if not radical. So we're just going to, in the next little while, drill down a little bit into each of these four behaviors. So here we've got the apostles' teaching. And I'd like to say that actually we're doing the same thing. Uh, you might say, how lucky were they? Go to the temple, hear the apostles sharing their experience of Jesus. That would be lively and exciting. Everything they learned when they were with Jesus, that would be great. If only we could do that. And we can. Because we have the apostles' teaching. It's the New Testament. The four Gospels the letters that they wrote to the, the baby churches and the revelation of Jesus to St. John, that's all the teaching of the apostles. We've got it. 
Devotion to it, though, is maybe another matter. And I hope that you find us faithful to the apostles in our teaching. And I hope that you're finding in your own devotion that there's life-giving stuff in there. Because actually it's really about being devoted to Jesus who's revealed in the teaching rather than being devoted to teaching itself. That Jesus is the word of God more than the Bible is. Jesus is first, Bible comes after. And something that excites me is that the Gospels are the personal accounts of these apostle authors who hung out with Jesus. It's their experience of him. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, real people who had real encounters and real observations to make. If you hang around in the Gospels, you'll be hanging around with Jesus. He's waiting for you there. I think this might be maybe a bridge too far, but actually if all you had were the Gospels, you'd do, you'd do fine. You'd be fine. So here's a question. What's growing in you as a result of your devotion to Jesus as revealed in the Gospels? Fellowship and communal living. We're doing it right now, once again, kinda. Fellowship, you could say, you know, we're pretty good at. Selling all our possessions, not so much. Just me, <laughs> says she with her gold earrings. Not by any stretch of the imagination are we doing this as the first believers did. They did it to the, such an extent they were offensive to people. And I hate to say it, I took one for the team here. I read pretty full-on stuff about how much they gave of themselves and it was uncomfortable. <laughs> so I hate to tell you this, but they considered the first sign of participation in the way as they called it at that point, was to sell up completely. And none of the apostles or leaders told them not to because it was a stupid thing to do. Nope, they just did it. And then uh, in the, uh, the city of Edessa, when the converts there started to kind of clue into who Jesus was, they basically sold up their stuff within days and became a nomadic group of people overnight. It's like, far out. So it's true that they thought Jesus was coming very soon. Uh, and so that shaped their behavior. What shapes our behavior equally is our sense that uh, we do not know when Jesus is returning, so we need to make some plans for the future, right? So that return of Jesus is a driver for, for both kinds of behavior. But it's also true that they utterly believed Jesus when he said to an already devout but wealthy young man, that the, the key thing for him to do was to sell his possessions and that that would lead to the life that he was seeking. And all through Christian history, you see people ditching their stuff and living radical lives. The Desert Fathers and Mothers did it. Francis of Assisi stripped naked in the town square and swapped his valuable robes with the uh, prickly brown um, something sack of a, of a beggar and tied it with a rope around his middle. And that is essentially what Franciscans still wear 800 years later. Um, Mother Teresa, uh, many, many of our uh, Christian ancestors have lived this radical life. There's something in it. But let's go then to 
hospitality, because hospitality has become something now that we tend to offer to our friends and family rather than to strangers, which is more the biblical pattern, especially in the Old Testament. So in these early days, we see God has chucked together the Jerusalem Jewish believers with their foreign brothers and sisters, made a Holy Spirit melting pot, if you like, and by worshipping together, eating together, sharing and giving generously to support one another, um, so nobody had any needs, they reflected the oneness that Jesus created by repairing the Adam wound between humanity and God. Then, though, God kept pushing the circle outwards. Jewish Jews, foreign Jews, Jews converted from other religions, Roman Gentiles, Ethiopian trans men, other Gentiles, ooh, all races, creeds, social classes, genders, masters, slaves, they were all understood to belong in this great oneness, authored and completed by God in Jesus. Inclusion always creates challenge, and the shocking nature of inclusion in the early church isn't mirrored well in the contemporary church. And someone said the other day, and I really loved this, she said, I'd rather be excluded because of those I include than included because of those I exclude. I liked that. So these strange and disturbing communities of believers sprang up all over the Roman world, living with such generosity of spirit that it staggered the people around them. And in 362, the Emperor Julian, so Christianity was now allowed to be, Constantine had set that up. Constantine is followed on by this guy, Julian, who wants to create a revival. Let's go back to the Greek gods. Here are his actual words. It's disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, and the impious Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. Teach those of the Hellenic faith to contribute to public service of this court, sort, stat. So this is, this is top down, this is the emperor saying to the priests, those Christians are looking after even our poor, and even, the, even Jews don't have to beg, which is kind of tragic that it would be expected that they would have to. And here you go, he's going, right, you priests, you need to copy those guys because they're onto something. So we actually see the transforming of culture as more people are being kind to one another. Christians became so good at it that we established houses for the poor and the sick, the first hospitals and hospices. We created safe places to stay. Our monastic communities provided shelter, medicine, places to worship, and to do ministry from. Gradually, the behavior of hospitality and communal living has dwindled away because we were kind of too efficient, and particularly in the West. So we've seen the atomizing of family life from tribe and extended family down to the nuclear group, mum, dad, and how many um, point children we have these days. And I'm noticing that even birthday parties are not done at home so much anymore. You know, everything goes out. We have a hospitality industry. So it's sort of a bit of a call back to, to home and hospitality as being a powerful thing. Because hospitality changes us as much when we're a host as it does when we're the guest. 
doesn't matter which role we sit in, it's transformative. And God has welcomed us not as guests, but as family. How wonderful that is. So our upcoming dinners are a chance to be hosts or guests. Jump in, be involved, be known. And camp out is a little taste of communal life together, hearing the person in the tent next to you snoring. Um, and we're going to be doing all four of these simple, unifying behaviours over the course of that weekend. And hopefully, you're noticing that we're seeing them weekly, monthly, yearly, even decadally now. We don't do them perfectly. I wish we could do them better. And hopefully, we're growing in our capacity to see Christ in the other and do that sort of radical generosity. So a question. What's your most memorable experience of being a guest? Breaking bread, the third of the four practices. So this is referring to two things, a ritual meal and regular meals. Eating, it can't be denied, is great behavior. I'm a big fan of eating. Can't live without it, literally. The ritual meal of our faith, though, uh, is known by a variety of names. It's sometimes called communion, the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Eucharist, which is just Greek for Thanksgiving, and it's practiced in different ways by different groups of believers. It's very intentional that we uh, do it and that we bring in certain elements of it. You will always see bread and you'll always see, if not wine, um, juice of some form, unless you're at Easter camp, in which case it might be brownie and coke. <laughs> Our Jerusalem people probably did it in a rabbinic form, where the teacher or rabbi would break bread for and with his disciples. It was a particular thing that rabbis did, and it seems that Jesus did that too. So these daily gatherings at the temple and the regular breaking of bread in a ritual way wasn't the full-blown Passover cedar meal every day. It was probably more this simple form of the rabbinic meal. But it still taps right back into the Passover meal. It was simple. It had a cup to represent God's promises. Maybe an ancient Hebrew, let's drink to that, if you will, sort of seals the promises. And the bread, blessed and broken into pieces by the rabbi. There are so many layers and richness to this simple bread and wine meal that we're barely scratching the surface. But let's think for a moment about the two disciples fleeing Jerusalem. They're not going for a stroll. Jesus has just been crucified and anybody who hung with him, people were looking to, to nail those guys too. So these disciples are fleeing Jerusalem because it's not safe. They're on the road back to their own village, Emmaus, and Jesus kind of shows up along the road with them. Interestingly, these two recognized him in the breaking of the bread. So somehow he is mysteriously kind of masked from them. But then as he ritually breaks the bread, he's revealed to them. And this is part of the mystery of the communion table, that Christ is somehow revealed to us in this meal. Jesus tells us he's the bread of life. He instructs us to eat of him. That was very shocking, and Christians were believed to be cannibals for a while. 
and, and to do this as often as we meet, to remember him. And this is a really special kind of remembering. As we do it, we enter into the meal ev freshly every time. It's called onamnesis. It brings that ancient meal right into the present. It means we're literally at the Lord's Supper. The bread of heaven, the cup of life are offered to us here and now, over and over, for as long as we live, for our special and spiritual nourishment. But Acts 2 also reminds us of just regular meals, eating together, just, you know, nothing ritual, just eating. The physical needs of those without food security is something that Christians and Jews have always taken seriously, which other religions either ignored or then picked up on and adopted because it's so transformative. So as we sit and eat, uh, we get to know one another. Barriers come down, stories come out, memories are made, trust is built, and love grows. We're nourished physically, socially, emotionally, and spiritually by eating together. It's such a simple thing, but it does all sorts of amazing stuff. And we know now that loneliness kills. People need connection. So our Christian perspective is to see Christ in the guest. And actually, if we can push our own circle out a bit and invite in a stranger, someone we don't know, and see Christ in that person, that, the Bible tells us, is a chance to possibly have angels at your table. That is actually in the Bible. So here's a question. How do you want to come to Jesus' table? today. And the prayers. Again, we're doing it now. The Jerusalem crowd were praying set prayers, psalms and readings from scripture every day at the temple. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament, so they were leaning into Torah. It was a rhythm. It was liturgy. And church Worship, as the movement away from Judaism happened, looked very much like what happened in the synagogues and, to some extent, the temple, because that's where it came from. And in many churches, it's still the pattern. It's actually a, a tricky number for us to pray in common when we're having to make up the prayers ourselves all the time. The Book of Common Prayer is the guide in the Western churches for praying in common, in harmony, in step with all the other Christians in the Western world. Here in New Zealand, we have this, a New Zealand prayer book, grounded in our seasons, culture, and reo. Our prayer has become highly individualized and privatized. Vineyard churches need some common prayers, I think. Religion may be a word that scares some of us, but it's a wonderful word. Re is from the Latin for again. Legio is the Latin for ligament. Oh, yeah, it's the Latin root of our word, ligament. That which flexes and holds together. So re-ligio, religion means to re-ligament, to put back together so it moves properly and healthily. Isn't that good? So, our spiritual tupuna were religious. And it's okay for us to be religious too. It's a good thing. 
They prayed the prayers, the set ones. We can too. The Psalms are among those set prayers, amongst many others. They also prayed the prayers that arose in their own hearts, and they wrote new ones, reworking some of the uh, things that they had formerly prayed in the light of who Jesus was. And someone else's prayer actually, at times, can be just the thing we need. So this is the perfect moment to invite Amy to come and pray for us the prayer she's written for our community, for you and me today. After that, I'll lead us in communion, and we'll close with the marvellous prayer composed by the early church fathers, centred in the apostles' teaching, so we can be faithful to those apostles specifically. We're going to pray the Apostles' Creed. So come on up, Amy. Let us pray. In a world of 7.8 billion people, where we can literally choose to be anything and anybody, I pray that we choose to become one, united in God. As we are surrounded by criticism, falseness, clickbait and hate, I pray that you guard us from evil, as it is your word, God, that is the truth. I pray that in a world of so many people, yet where so many feel isolated, alone, and are victims of injustice and terror, that no one feels alone, that people are able to find and see you as the light guiding them on the path to truth, justice, and love. I pray that as a church, people will feel and know your love through one another, and that love binds us together so that every smile, every wave, and every gesture spreads your love and hope. I pray that in a world where we can choose to be anything, we choose to be kind to one another, so that this place, this church, is safe. Make it a place of refreshment, calmness, peace, hope, love, and freedom, so that we can be united as a family in Christ to show that to show the world that God loves everyone, no matter their circumstance or struggle. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. And if you're in the Forest Hill or the Bays area of Auckland's North Shore, we would so love to have you at our next service this Sunday. You can get details on service times and more info on our kids and student environments by visiting svc.org.nz. That's svc.org.nz. Hope you have a great day and we'll see you next time here on the podcast.